United States Institute of Peace, along with Sirius XM's POTUS Channel 124, now present their weekly podcast. You have now seen the site. It's not necessarily a regular thing, a regular occurrence, but protesters on the street in different places, in this case in Raleigh, North Carolina, protesting to try to reopen their states. This is not the safe distancing that we have seen approaching or being recommended by experts. As the coronavirus has grown into a global pandemic, many movements that have relied on street protests have struggled to know how to respond. And on the international scene, the evidence of a global slowdown in public protests is striking. So says our next guest. We'll delve into that now with Jonathan Pinckney, a program officer and research lead for USIP's program on nonviolent action, tweeting at J.C. Pinckney. Jonathan, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. All right. So the, the, the change, how do you notice this and what have you been seeing? Well, I mean, the first thing to mention is that there, it, this slowdown in public demonstrations is incredibly striking. Uh, one source that measures this is the Armed Conflict Location Event Data Project. Uh, they've noted that over the last month, there's been an over 70 percent decline uh, in the number of public protests uh, relative to the average last year. Um, so that's uh, that's the first thing that really stands out. But I think an important thing to emphasize is that this doesn't mean that social movements are going away uh, because uh, the kinds of nonviolent tactics that these movements do uh, go well beyond uh, public protest. Uh, there are literally hundreds of other tactics uh, that movements use. And we've seen this in things like pro- like uh, public uh, public events in uh, Brazil where people stood in the uh, in the windows or balconies of their of their homes and banged pots and pans together to express dissent uh, or like a, a place like Israel uh, where opposition parties uh, organized a, a public demonstration where people uh, had designated spots uh, out in a square six feet apart so that they could express dissent uh, while still uh, following social distancing guidelines Safe to say, Jonathan, that some sort of visual reinforcement of the message is helpful. In other words, when you see video on newscasts or even online of hundreds, thousands of protesters, that sort of sends a message that there is a lot of support where it's a little bit more difficult to see that support when you don't have these mass gatherings. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly true. Um, you know, pr- public protests, uh, as you said, where you see sort of large numbers of people gathered in a single place uh, are an important communicative tool uh, that many movements use. But, you know, the core way that movements achieve change uh, is by undermining the, the pillars of support or the sources of power of their opponents. And that's possible to do uh, even if you don't have that, you know, the powerful communicative potential of, of lots of people gathered in a public place. And, you know, there are also, you know, there are also powerful ways to signal dissent, uh, even with uh, small numbers of people, you know, through, you know, power, through sort of powerful symbols uh, or, you know, or other ways that, that go to the heart of a, uh, of a particular issue. Again, we are speaking with Jonathan Pinckney, Program Officer, Research Lead for the United States Institute of Peace Program on Nonviolent Action. I also note um, that you have co-authored this piece, which indicates the historical record of nonviolent action is also full of powerful example of the power of strikes, boycotts, and other tactics. And an overliance on public protest may be a weakness for many movements. So in other words, it's not just about how many people show up at a march. 
Exactly right. Um, yeah, you know, many, many movements uh, can oftentimes become stuck in the idea that, you know, public protests are the, are the core of what they're doing. While, you know, as I, as I said before, you know, the core of how movements achieve change is by, is by shifting power. Uh, by undermining the power sources of their opponents. And that's often more effectively accomplished uh, through things like a, like a strike or a boycott, uh, where you're sort of directly undermining uh, the way that a, an, opponent, uh, an opponent functions, uh, rather than you know, the more purely communicative function of, of public demonstrations. Jonathan, you made mention of this a little bit, but I also go back to the piece you co-authored. While online activism has long been an important complement to real-life action with public gatherings off the table, many activists are making it a much more central aspect of their activities. Uh, Give us a sense, number one, of the penetration, the availability of, say, Internet service in places where some of these protests are key, and whether or not restrictive governments, if indeed that is the target of these protests, can hamper the efforts to use online methods to try to make sure you you engender support. Yeah, I mean, so in answer to the first question, and it's quite widespread in many of the places where we've seen, uh, you know, some of the some of the largest and most prominent uh, movements, uh, say, in the last year. You know, the place that comes immediately to mind for me is, is Hong Kong, uh, where even before the pandemic, uh, online activism and, and various kinds of online organizing. We're a really key part of how that uh, how that pro democracy movement was functioning. Now, uh, you're exactly right as well, though, uh, that the digital space uh, gives a number of advantages uh, to repressive governments. And I actually just published uh, today uh, a new piece on the USIP website that goes into some of these things in a little bit more detail. Uh, but I really focus on on three things. Uh, first, that because repressive governments uh, typically uh, have a great deal of control over the internet service providers in their country. There's greater potential for, for censorship. Uh, next, sort of the, the cost of surveillance of movements uh, is a lot lower. Uh, and third, of course, you know, governments have, uh, repressive governments have a lot of potential to spread disinformation uh, against their against their opponents. Uh, there's just, in the last few weeks, uh, an incident uh, where Twitter has taken down tens of thousands of accounts uh, associated with various uh, government disinformation campaigns, uh, including, I, I thought, thought most striking in this, a case in which a single staffer of the Honduran government had over 3,000 3, Twitter accounts uh, that were being used uh, to spread government propaganda. Uh, so it's really, it certainly is quite hard for, for movements to, to counter uh, these, uh, these advantages by repressive governments, but there are certainly some uh, creative tactics that different kinds of movements are employing uh, to to counter that, uh, for instance by uh, for instance by either you know sort of creating uh, broad based alliances of different groups to to spread uh, to spread true information, um, or you know uh, adopting tools like end to end encryption or other or other tools like that to avoid uh, to avoid surveillance. Uh, but it certainly is a challenge. Last question, Jonathan. I, I feel like we're saying when we last left the world, because everything now is being seen through the filter and being reported through the filter of coronavirus and the COVID-19 pandemic. But you mentioned you touched on Venezuela. Uh, I think we've touched a little bit on Israel. Of course, Hong Kong was a hot spot and Chile. I wonder, are there some places where you're seeing an especially high temperature, if you will, in the social protests that are going on right now, places that we haven't really been able to pay much attention to because of the overwhelming uh, storyline of coronavirus? 
I mean, you know, I think it's interesting because I wouldn't necessarily separate the the high temperature of movements uh, from, you know, seeing things through the filter of coronavirus. Uh, that, I mean, even in places where there were existing movements before the pandemic, um, those movements are, are, are also being filtered through through the lens of, of the, the government's COVID response. Um, and, and I think Hong Kong, which we mentioned, is a, is a particularly good example of this, uh, where, you know, obviously, you know, last year was a, was a we saw a sort of a huge series of mobilizations uh, around uh, demands for, for greater democracy uh, there. That movement hasn't gone away. Uh, it's continuing. We've actually seen some, some new protests protests recently, uh, but the movement is also uh, is taking advantage of the fact that many Hong Kongers are uh, upset with their government's uh, response to the coronavirus. Uh, and so that's been become sort of a new mobilization point uh, for the movement in Hong Kong. Uh, so I think what we're, gonna, what we're going to see is that you know, this is going to be a, a core part of the grievances uh, that many movements are, are seeking to address. Uh, and as, you know, as people in, in countries around the world uh, are you know, responding negatively to uh, perceived failures of, of government response, uh, we're going to see that and used by movements uh, as, a, as a mobilizing tool. Jonathan, thank you for spending time with us on POTUS this morning. Yeah, thank you so much. It was my pleasure. Jonathan Pinckney, Program Officer Research Lead for USIP, the United States Institute of Peace Program on Nonviolent Action. As he mentioned, he's got another piece up there. There's the most recent one, Popular Movements are Confronting the Challenge of How to Practice Social Distancing While Still Acting to Advance Their Demands. His Twitter handle is at J.C. Pinckney, at J-C-P-I-N-C-K-N-E-Y. This podcast has been brought to you by the United States Institute of Peace and Sirius XM's POTUS, Channel 124.